If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The next podcast is a bit different from our normal fare. What you're about to hear is a lecture from our recent virtual Medieval Life and Death event, where we invited five medieval historians to speak on various topics related to everyday experiences in the Middle Ages. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, introduces the speaker and runs a short Q&A with them afterwards. If you want, you can watch these lectures on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. In this talk, Chris Woolgar discusses medieval food. My name is David Musgrove. I work for BBC History magazine, and this is one of the talks in the virtual BBC History magazine Medieval Life and Death Day. Uh, The magazine was due to hold this event live in London and York with speakers considering various aspects of medieval life and death. 
But sadly, Corona has spoiled our plans, so we are running the talks virtually. I'm here in my spare room, and I'm joined uh, down the line by Professor Chris Woolgar, who is Professor of History and Archival Studies at the University of Southampton. His research interests include the study of the everyday, particularly in the medieval period. And he's written numerous books in this area, including The Great Household in Late Medieval England, The Senses in Late Medieval England, and the culture of food in England 1200 to 1500. His talk today is on medieval food, which he describes as a window onto medieval lives. So Chris, take it away. Today I'm going to examine some key questions about medieval food, mainly with reference to England, but with some comparisons to elsewhere in Europe. So how do we know about food? We have an extraordinary range of sources from medieval cookbooks. We don't have more than a few of those, perhaps some 4,000 recipes from medieval England. We have some images in illuminated manuscripts. We have, again, not many, but some quite interesting domestic accounts. And food appears incidentally in all sorts of other documentation. We have the physical remains of food itself in terms of bones from archaeological excavations, plants and seeds. And we have some physical remains as well in terms of buildings, like the, the slide here of Glastonbury Abbey, the abbot's kitchen that went up in the 1330s. And we also have a very considerable amount of documentation for food production. One of the interesting things about food in the Middle Ages is that there is a common pattern of cuisine, at least at an elite level across Western Europe. And it's a cuisine that favours highly spiced food and often thin, acidic sauces based on wine, vinegar or verjuice. The sources are really important in this, and with pretty much everything, there is a source of some kind. We can see this quite nicely in a couple of quotes that we have here. Two sayings. Henry V at the Siege of Meaux says, Guerre sans feu ne valoir rien, non plus qu'enduil son moutarde. War without fire is worth nothing like sausages without mustard. And then a proverb from about a hundred years before, a chardelot sauce de chien, wolf meat, dog sauce. And I think the interpretation of that is there's something a little disappointing. Well, what about the diet of everybody else? Certainly people emulate the elite. One of the, gen one of the striking features is really the consistency in general of patterns of medieval diet. There are differences certainly, but they are differences on the whole in terms of quantity and quality, rather than the elite eating wholly different foods from the lower classes. There are some exceptions to this. Most people most of the time, before the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century, have a diet that is based on cereals, even if there are occasions such as harvest or Christmas feasts where they will shape their meals in a way that is similar to the elite. And that brings me on to one of the big questions from the Middle Ages. 
the food supply. The great problem for medieval people is firstly getting enough food and is then preserving foodstuffs to ensure there is a supply all year round until the next harvest. Storing corn in barns is certainly a preferred strategy. It's a large-scale investment and some of the most distinctive survivals we have from the medieval countryside in England are great barns, like the one at Breeden on the left that goes up around about the time of the Black Death and the one at Laycock on the right. We cannot underestimate the significance of the harvest, the different grains and secure and dry storage. Periodic dearth and occasional famine are a real problem in England until the 1380s and for much longer on the continent. And there are some very difficult periods indeed. For example, the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317 saw failure of crops in successive years and animal disease at the same time, and there was significant mortality. Foodstuffs have to be preserved. Certainly meat has to be salted, but the amount of meat depends on the availability of animals in the countryside. And in England in the 13th century, as the pressure of population rises, we can tell from the bone remains that animals are in fact getting older. That is, they live out their lives producing wool or are used for traction before they are eaten. So people are not husbanding animals primarily for meat. That has dropped out what has gone down uh, the list of things. And similarly with dairy foods, converting milk into butter and cheese is a very good way of preserving it. But you need large-scale dairying farming for this to have a significant impact. There is more of this after the the Black Death than for some while before. We can see this, for example, in the evidence for veal consumption, bones of calves and things, for example. This is intimately linked to dairying. Another foodstuff, quite important, are marine fish. And these are dried and salted in places well away from England. And we get large quantities really first coming into England in the period 1000 to 1100 AD. And after that, they remain an important part of diet. Peasant households have their own gardens and most will have had, like most farms, small numbers of hens and geese. Poultry farming is overwhelmingly a peasant activity and eggs are a really important cheap source of protein. So we have a picture up until about 1350 when cereals are really important in the diet of most people. But from that point, there is a big change in the potential for food in England. The Black Death, in short, changes the balance of food. It kills people but not animals, although there are some cattle diseases. And there is great availability of all foodstuffs afterwards. The peasantry want and get bread made with wheat rather than poorer grains. And they want meat too. So that's our first big problem. Let's have a look at our, our second 
area of interest, religion and morality. This may slightly seem counterintuitive, but it is actually a key strand in understanding food in the Middle Ages. What people eat and when they eat it is dictated by religion. Complete fasting is very unusual, as is the complete avoidance of some foodstuffs. What is typical is is periodic abstinence from some categories of food. There is a close link between foods and Christianity. One has only to think of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and two of the deadly sins in particular, gluttony and lust. Gluttony to medieval men was not only about overconsumption, but it was also about inappropriate consumption at times other than set mealtimes, defined in one text as overlate suppers. It was also, for medieval people, about the overstimulation of the senses. When Henry of Gromond, Duke of Lancaster, confessed around 1354 to gluttony in his book The Holy Medicines, he had in mind not just rich meats, but ones that were made as delicious as man could, with good spices and the most piquant sauces. Lust was closely linked to carnality. The Latin for meat, caro, carnis, is the origin of the word carnality. It's the stimulation of flesh with flesh. Well, in England, between 1100 and 1500, we find the avoidance of meat on three days of the week. Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays, not just the Fridays that we think about eating fish today, but Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. Beyond that, the whole of the season of Lent and sometimes of Advent as well, and sometimes in the run up to the Ascension. Uh, the eaves of the feasts of the apostles, the great Marian festivals, and sometimes the feasts of individual saints dictated perhaps by personal choice. In other parts of Europe, the pattern of abstinence was different, and medieval England is pretty much at the extreme end of the scale. And what this translates to in elite households is abstinence that is expected on about 180 days of the year. That's half the year. Some pursue a more rigorous diet, especially the clergy, who are more observant generally. They have a longer period of Lent, not just 40 days, but 60, uh, and a longer Advent as well. And together, these perhaps add another 40 to 60 days to the period of abstinence. And the more rigorous diet is also followed by individuals and may be followed out of penance. So, for example, Aymer de Valence, one of the the great, great barons in March 1300, we find him eating bread that is made substantially with ash. On days of abstinence, when meat was not eaten in the elite household, In religious households, monastic and secular, and in many others, it was the usual practice to eat fish. Fish is described in a sermon of around 1400 as closer than meat to the food that men will eat in paradise. 
Fish was commonly consumed in an urban environment in the period 1100 to 1350, but perhaps less so thereafter. I'll give you one example. Um, doubt, perhaps, that comes from heresy, from the Lollard heresy. Uh, the Lollards believed that all God's creatures might be eaten at any time. And Marjorie Baxter of Martham in Norfolk was tried for heresy in 1429. She told the Bishop of Norwich that it was better on a Friday to eat the leftover meat from the day before than go to the market to buy fish and get into debt. So there are, are ethical qualities attached to food. Virtue is demonstrated by what you eat or by what you don't. It's not clear how far fish were eaten in the countryside. It depends in part on locality and proximity to the sea, but fresh fish was carried to all parts of the country by pack horse. There is nowhere in England that is more than a day and a half from the sea. But fresh fish is more expensive than preserved forms. It's also partly a question of evidence. Excavations in towns, there is usually quite a depth of deposits and we have vast numbers of fish bones from some of them. But in the countryside, typically archaeological sites from villages have very little in terms of stratigraphy. So we don't know about what was eaten there. On these days, abstinence might be the simple avoidance of meat, uh, the consumption of grains and perhaps outside of Lent of dairy foods. But there was some fishing in the countryside of eels and fish from streams and rivers. And there were also some preserved fish like herring that were in fact very cheap. And indeed, um, some shellfish as well, like oysters, were common cheap food. And we have expressions like, it's not worth an oyster or not worth an oyster shell. So let's turn to the links between food and status. The key to understanding the messages of the elite meal and also to the ambitions of those that copy the elite is to see these links. Elite meals are characterised by their variety, by the expense of their ingredients, and ingredients too that would have been hard to come by for many, at least in the period up to 1350. These meals are characterised by fresh foods of all sorts, but especially fresh meat and fresh fish. They're characterised by the flesh of young animals and by foods from hunting, and by hunting, I include hunting in parks, although this may be more like farming, especially with fallow deer. Because hunting is restricted, these foods are privileged. Venison, the word quite literally means the product of hunting, but there are deer, there's wild boars, boar, and there are indeed wild birds. And here we see the Longthorpe Tower near Peterborough um, with its wall paintings of typical Fenland birds. And there are bitten at the top. Freshwater fish are also characteristic of elite diet. There is an extensive investment in fish ponds, uh, especially from the period of the Norman Conquest onwards. Even fish from streams may be more profitable for a peasant to sell than to eat. So on the 6th of October 1406, the householder Bishop Mitford of Salisbury bought three trout, 
for 12 pence. That is, each of these trout was worth approximately the day's wage of a skilled craftsman. As I've suggested, spices and sauces are the hallmarks of elite cuisine. We find them coming into Western Europe in significant quantities, first in the 11th century, before the Crusades. They then increase in volume. The big difference in England comes when they start to be shipped direct from the Mediterranean in Genoese galleys, rather than them coming to this country by pack horse across France. So this happens, the galleys start coming direct from the mid-13th century onwards. And we can see the impact of this in the trajectory of the most highly prized of spices. So pepper in the 12th century is something that is really very expensive indeed. But we need only think of the meaning of the words peppercorn rent to see what happens to it. In the middle of the 13th century, the senior of the abbot's chaplains at St Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury controlled the issue of the spices to the cook. That is, they were too precious for those making the meals to control the ingredients. There are other connections in food that are connected to status. So roast foods in particular are linked to high status. They're profligate in terms of food. So roast meat rather than boiled meat. And if we look at the household ordinances of Edward II in 1318, we find it is only the upper tiers of the king's servants, his gentle servants, that have roasted food. The lower ranks have boiled meats. And the same is true of fried foods as well. One other link that I would make to status, and it may be surprising, is colour. Highly coloured food was an impressive feature of the greatest feasts and was copied for special occasions well down the social scale. It needs particular spices for colour, so saffron for yellow, for example, or sanders and sandalwood for red. There is a notion that people have to recognise their means. And medieval cookbooks explain something that's called petty curry or little curry, little cookery. So this is for a man who cannot afford spices, uh, showing how he might use herbs and other garden products in ways which allowed him to imitate elite consumption. What meals are eaten by whom and when? There were three principal meals, breakfast, lunch and supper. Breakfast, jantaculum, was largely confined to the elite, to travellers and to some manual workers. In terms of timing, it was not to be eaten until the first mass of the day had been completed. It was also not eaten on Fridays. Lunch, or prandium, was the main meal, probably took place around about 11 o'clock in our terms, but it varies in the greatest establishments, depending on the numbers of people there are and the numbers of sittings that are necessary for eating food. Timing also depends on the day. The meal is later on Fridays, when in many establishments it may have been the only meal that was eaten. And there was a notion that it should not be eaten until after Vespers. 
The evidence suggests, however, that Vespers is said much earlier on Fridays, around the middle of the day, so people didn't in fact have to wait until into the evening to eat their lunch. Supper, cana, is an evening meal, lighter than lunch. When in the day it is eaten depends on the time of year. In winter it may be eaten during daylight hours. There are two other occasions for drinking and food. There is a mid-afternoon drinking, a bit like afternoon tea, but obviously we don't have tea. The Masons at York Minster, for example, around about 1350 in summer, were to work until the first bell for Vespers, and then they might drink in their lodge until the third bell, after which they were to return to work. There is also something that is called all-night, This is a livery of food and drink, typically direct to a chamber so that the Lord and some others have food and drink overnight. The buttery and pantry in great households are closed up overnight. We talk about the bars to these offices. That's the sort of barrier at which food and drink was dispensed. So the bar is closed overnight. So I'm going to talk a bit about the structure of the meal. Again, elite meals set the pattern for others. An elite meal often came in three courses, but they are not courses like contemporary English dining today. They are much more like South Asian dining, where a whole series of dishes come to the table together. Within each course, there is usually one or more pottage, and one or more sweet dishes, but mostly at an elite level, the course contains meat or fish. The first course typically contains the great meats, often boiled, sometimes roasted, and by the great meats I mean beef, mutton and probably pork, and there will be quite a list of these coming to table. These lists in menus don't tell us everything about the food. Uh, Almost all of them don't tell us about the sources with which these foods would have been served. This is something that elite cooks would have known about and prepared themselves. The meats become more refined in the medieval sense as the meal progresses. There are more delicate foods in the second course, for example, birds and young animals. Indeed, we find what looked like entirely improbable lists of birds. And it's certainly true that in the medieval period, birds that are now extinct in this country, or nearly so, were consumed. So here we will find bustards and bitterns, cranes, a different variety from the cranes we have today as they overwinter in this country. We'll find spoonbills as well. And also small birds like larks and sparrows and so on. The third course, again, typically has more refined foods. And then there are dishes that come between the courses. They're called entremets, quite literally, between the courses, or subtleties. These, in origin, were light or special foods, but by the 15th century, they were more of staged tableau. And at the conclusion of the meal, there would have been fruit, wafers and hypocrites, that is, a spiced wine. 
There may be a separate course taken elsewhere, uh, a banquet in a banqueting house. Beware if you're invited to a medieval banquet. A banquet is not the whole meal. It's just a concluding element, often no more than spices and wine. But sometimes there are a few light foods too cooked in the banqueting house. So at Kenilworth, for example, excavations have shown large numbers of rabbit bones in the banqueting houses. Spices are taken at the conclusion of a meal, perhaps as we might eat chocolates, but again in the South Asian traditions of cuisine, spices often come at this point. In medieval medical theory, these spices have a digestive function. So let's look briefly at a menu. This is for a feast given by Henry IV for those jousting in Smithfield with the men of France and the men of Hainaut. And you'll see that the the three rubricated words in red, the words in red that say the first course. And then um, it starts off with two pottages, fermenty, which is a a dish that's based on wheat uh, with venison, so some meat from hunting chopped up and in this. And then viande royale is a broth made with meat. Uh, the next item, gross char powdered. Uh, that is the large meats, the great meats, the beef, the mutton, the pork. Powdered means sprinkled with sauces. Signets roast. Capon de haute grease, so specially fattened capon, pheasant and a leech meat. A leech meat is a set dish uh, that is then sliced. And then interestingly, we have jasper stones of diverse colours with a custard. Now, there is quite a lot written in the Middle Ages about the qualities of stones. Uh, they may do all sorts of impressive things. And if you put them in a dish like this, those powers will translate into the food. Then we go to the second course. And on this page, we just have two pottages. Bruit Saracene, so this is Saracen broth. Now, Saracen, as an epithet, tells me that the food is red in colour and a jelly. So how is food eaten? There are two principal utensils, knives and spoons. There are no forks, except for a few that are used with sweetmeats like green ginger. This has all sorts of consequences for food preparation. Either food comes to table as something that can be sliced, especially carved, or it needs to be made into a pulp. And there are also consequences for diners. They have to use their fingers for much eating. There are a great many references to basins and ewers, to the formal washing of hands before and after the meal, the provision of towels. It's all part of the great ceremony and ritual of the medieval meal. There are no individual plates, uh, but there are trenchers, which are wooden rectangles or pewter or even silver rectangles onto which food is placed typically on a sliced of bread. And coming to table with the food are saucers, as we see here. A saucer is a shallow bowl for sauce, and these are critical to the experience of food. Everybody has bread. 
If we look at an elite dinner service, the table settings, the saucers, the platters of various sizes, uh, the largest are known as chargers, these have things to tell us about the distinctions that are made in the meal. We expect some of the dishes coming to table to be shared, and we can see the ratios from the plate in inventories. So the inventory of the household of Richard II, made around the time of his death in 1399, contains two classes of plate for the table. It has a silver gilt service and a silver service. Now, the inventory suggests that each person in Richard's household with a silver gilt cup could have had before him during the meal a single charger. That's one of these bigger serving dishes. Those with silver cups share a charger, perhaps between two. There is provision for up to five silver gilt dishes per diner using the silver gilt service. But if you are just using the silver service, i.e. you're further down the pecking order, there are only three silver dishes for those who are partaking. There is also provision for other fine dishes, for spice plates to go with the spices at the end of the meal, salts and arms dishes. Uh, Remember that liberality is a key element in the magnificence of the elite meal. So who eats together and where? Well, elite groups within the household come together, the Lord and his immediate entourage, typically in the Great Hall. And here we see Bishop Waltham Palace. This is a palace of the Bishops of Winchester, and it was remodelled in the late 14th century for William of Wickham and then in the 15th century for Cardinal Beaufort. You see the row of five big windows there for the hall and with the bishop's private apartments to the left-hand end and to the right-hand end there are the service departments, the pantry and the buttery and at the extreme right-hand end is the great kitchen. Well in the hall we will find things laid out, tables, a top table and also side and lower tables. There is a group of I guess household regulations known as the Rules of St Robert that were written by the learned Bishop of of Lincoln, Robert Grosstest, for the Countess of Lincoln around about the mid-13th century. And they tell us quite a lot about what goes on at this point, where people sit, for example. And they tell us how guests are escorted in and treated with honour and about the traditions of hospitality. So not all the household eats with the Lord, or not all the courses. Um, The rules of gross tests say, let your freemen and guests be seated at tables on either side together, not here for their three. And when the free household are seated, all the grooms shall enter, be seated and rise together. Now the grooms are a group of adolescent boys, often looking after the horses in the stable, but also doing a lot of the menial work in other household departments. Strictly forbid, says Gross Test, that there be noise during mealtimes. You've got to think of the dynamics of this group. Abbot Walter de Wenlock of Westminster, in his household ordinances from the end of the 13th century, tells us that the grooms are expected to leave the hall before the cheese is served. 
And equally, they are not expected to hang around outside the hall, making a noise, as you can imagine, but to go back to their quarters. So let's think a bit more about the ambience of the meal and how it is eaten. So in the elite household, and for those who copy it, there is formality and ceremonial. It's synonymous with prestige. If there can be quiet conversation or silence, yes, that is particularly good. Servants are repeatedly enjoined to silence. Sometimes there are readings uh, in monasteries, but also in pious households. This is the refectory at Fountains Abbey, and you see the gentleman on the right-hand side is in the place where the reader would have been. Uh, religious texts typically take uh, are, are used for these meals at mealtimes. There is also sharing of food, including from the plate of the Lord or Lady. Uh, the rules of Robert Gross' test, again, order, suggest to the Countess of Lincoln that she order that your dish be so refilled and heaped up, especially from the light courses, the entremets, that you may courteously give from your dish to right and left to all at high table and to whom else it pleases you that they have of the same as you had in front of you. There is also charity in terms of food arms. It's expected at all levels of society and for the elite it is unsurprisingly a bigger commitment. Before the Black Death, we find some noble households, especially those of women and those of bishops, where there are groups of poor who dine regularly at table. There might almost be an almshouse within the household. That is, they're probably the same poor people day after day in some households. So Dame Catherine de Norwich, whose household account we have for 1336 to 7, she's the widow of an exchequer official. She feeds a group of 13 poor every day on a virtuous diet of bread and herring. There is also collected up from the table the broken meats, the food arms, cleared away by the household armourer, and this is very typical. They're placed in great buckets at the gate of the household. And again, Robert Gross Test tells us that the household of the Bishop of Lincoln, that is his own household, is served at Prandium with two large dishes, large and full, to increase the arms. So you are not expected to eat everything that comes to table in front of you. You're supposed to save it and put it aside for feeding the poor. Sometimes we find special foods made for the poor by the great household. The account of the feeding of the 5,000 in St John's Gospel records that the two loaves that went with the five fishes were of barley bread, and households had special alms loaves baked of barley. We can see this in the household of Dame Catherine de Norwich, for example. The perpetual diet of bread and herring is in fact barley bread and herring, and we can also see it in the household of Henry III, who might reenact this miracle by feeding thousands of poor at a time. So where are these meals eaten? 
Space in the late medieval household is used and reused. Places where meats are eaten are used for other things too. And if you look at illuminations, medieval illuminations, where people are eating, you will often see them eating from trestle tables. By the second half of the 14th century, the meals of the elite were taken in their great chamber rather than in hall. And this is the Bishop of Lincoln's great chamber at Liddington in Rutland from the end of the 14th century. And we can imagine this sort of meal going on there and you see the doorway through to the bishop's private chambers behind. Servants and lower ranks certainly continue to eat in hall and leading household officials may eat there as well, the head officers of the household. But one of the interesting things is that in the 15th century, houses become to be very different, at least at an elite level. As households, elite households move around the country less, there is investment in fewer properties. Households in the 13th and 14th century uh, travel around, the the elite households travel around the countryside using up um, the produce of their manors. Uh, But by the time we have got to the end of the 13th century and certainly into the 14th century, this happens less and less. And we see the impact in the 15th century in terms of building works. People invest in fewer properties is. If we look at the concentration of royal palaces that grew around London, for example, places like Eltham, Richmond, Greenwich, great more investment has gone into them. Only at the end of the period, however, do we begin to get rooms allocated for eating meals. Dining rooms, for example, in royal household residences. The third Duke of Buckingham had a breakfast room in his house at Queenhithe in London in 1501, when a small number of benches were bought for it. Hampton Court has a breakfast chamber by 1535, and while it has a room that's described as the dining chamber, it is in fact the royal presence chamber, which was where the king and queen often ate. We have to remember that dining at this level is a public event. Aside from the investment in display in the room where food is served, People also have to invest in the offices where it is prepared. So this is Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire. Um, The work of Sir Thomas Burr in the 1470s. He entertains Richard III here in 1484. And he constructs this huge brick-built kitchen very, very high ceilings. You have to remember that this will be a very hot place indeed. Height helps in terms of ventilation here. Uh, We also see the great fireplaces, but a dresser, uh, a sort of big serving hatch where the food is prepared. We have some long and detailed regulations for the household from late 15th century England known as the Harleian Household Regulations. And they tell us a great deal about the ceremonial of service. But they also tell us about the dresser as an intermediate point between the kitchen and those areas to which food is delivered, that is the great chamber and the hall. So when it is ready to serve 
the principal servant goes down, he orders the gentlemen who are to bring the food to uh, table, the gentleman and the yeoman of the chamber to the dresser. You have to imagine it is covered with a cloth by the yeoman of the scullery. Assays are taken. Now an assay is a tasting of food against poison. So the server gives an assay to the yeoman cook of every dish of meat. So the cook has to eat his own food. The yeoman of the scullery, who in this case has been responsible for preparing some of the the sauces, is given an assay of every sauce served. And the clerk of the kitchen is there to make an account of the food going out. We can see from recipe books from the 15th century, uh, in terms of their structure, um, something quite interesting in terms of the colour of food. Many mention it in a clause right at the end of the recipe, and typically they will say something like, and colour it with, for example, saffron. And it comes just before the final direction, serve it forth. So these are the final touches in preparing dishes dishes for a table. Uh, And as well as colour, it's also the point at which powdered spices or comfits or other decoration is applied to the dish. And just occasionally the recipes make it explicit where this final stage happens. And it happens at the dresser. So this is what elite cooks do. Let's think about eating in the towns and the countryside as opposed to the great household because the bulk of food consumption and the bulk of cooking is not done in the elite household. Great households are overwhelmingly male institutions and great lords have distinguished male cooks who go round with them and who prepare their food wherever they go. But elsewhere, most of the cooking, most of the time, is done by women. And we need to think a bit about this experience. The range of foods is a little different. Uh, Obviously, there are constraints in terms of expenditure. We know about peasant crops, in particular from the records of tithes. Uh, I've said that corn is the most important crop, uh, but there are also legumes in significant quantities and the produce of gardens. Whereas the lords have wheat, peasants before the Black Death certainly often have poorer grains, rye, barley, oats. Sometimes they have mixtures too, such as maslin, which is a mixture of wheat and rye, or dredge, which is barley and oats, and there are other mixtures where grains are mixed with legumes, so oats and legumes, or beans with corn of some sort. And crops are mixed like this to ensure that something at least grows. We have records of tithes gathered by Westminster Abbey in the 14th century, and they speak from time to time of an experience of food that is much more marginal. The main foods are certainly coming from cereals. Uh, We can see the ingredients of pottage, ale and indeed bread. But occasionally one gets a glimpse of things that are quite horrifying. With the disaster of the Black Death in 1349, an islip in Oxfordshire, among the corn remaining that year on the abbot's estate, 
were two quarters and three bushels of malt. Now, this is malt that had come from the abbot's tenants, the, the peasants. But instead of it being made of barley or indeed oats, which the, the poorer grains that you might have been using for brewing, in that year, the two quarters and three bushels of malt were made from weeds. The peasants also have their gardens. These are often the preserve of women. We have references to female gardeners. And we sometimes know about this because they're working for the, the larger institutions, uh, such as the garden at Durham Priory's cell at Monk Wearmouth in 1366. Or there are three Garth women who worked for Ralph Lord Cromwell's household at Tattershall in Lincolnshire in 1416-17. to 17. And we get... Other glimpses of women at work with food we can see just occasionally inside the peasant kitchen. There is an early 13th century tract in, in praise of virginity, holy maidenhood, and it sets out the travails of the housewife who might otherwise have led a life of chastity and devotion. She is overwhelmed by domesticity, while the baby is screaming, the pot is boiling over on the fire. The cat is at the bacon flitch suspended from the ceiling beams. The cereal cake on the bakestone is burning. The dog has hidden. The calf is suckling, that is, the calf is taking the milk. The lady should have already drawn for her dairy work. And her husband is, of course, chiding her. We get a glimpse here of typical peasant foods. The bacon flitch is very interesting. Pig keeping provides an important element of protein in peasant diet. But it also becomes proverbial. The expression to win the flitch directed to newlyweds meant to have lived for a year and a day in marital harmony. There is the cautionary tale of the flitch of Dunmow which was awarded to adulterers, and it displayed the disasters that came with adultery. For it was a little bacon flitch that has long hanged and is rancid and tough. That is, it was far from the desirable and well-prepared bacon that came with a happy marriage. So we need to set aside, I think, as well... Um, the notions of self-sufficiency that you might find implied in peasant agriculture and indeed in peasant gardens. Medieval England was a market economy and people made regular trips to local towns or even out and about in their villages to buy foodstuff. They go out to buy bread, they go out to buy ale. And we can see from the regulation of these what was available, the advantages of buying in town. And we find in towns people going out to buy bread, butter, meat and fish. At the top here we have a passage from the Oak Book of Southampton from around 1300. These are the municipal ordinances and they set out the numbers of aldermen and which streets were to provide them. This one allocates three aldermen um, from, the, um, from Simnel Street and it says with the fish market of Le Marché de Poisson and all of Bull Street. And we see down below the fish market itself. It has now moved to a new location next to the West Gate. It was in front of St Michael's Church, but the 
area underneath this was in fact open and that is where the fish was sold very very close to the quayside and the west gate immediately to the right of the newly located fish market there leads out onto the town quay Well, patterns of elite eating were copied across society, perhaps as far down as the upper tiers of the peasantry. We find, for example, them using tablecloths, just as the elite do. We find them in these in inventories of their goods. Certainly the rural clergy expected to dine in this way. We have a coroner's record from uh, St Marybourne in Hampshire near Andover, which despite the tragedy it records, gives us an insight into eating at this level. In 1385, one John Brown Robin, now, in the parlance of the great household, a Brown Robin is a big cauldron. So John Brown Robin had probably come from a great household. He was laying bread on the vicar's table when he tripped and fell on a knife that he was carrying along with the linen for the table. So we can see what he is trying to do. He's putting out the bread ready for the service of the meal. With social emulation, however, comes a continuing need for the elite to distinguish themselves. They are interested in new tastes and new foods. We shouldn't forget that the great voyages of discovery that start in the mid-15th century set out in search of spices, new ways to the spice islands. Well, as well as finding the new worlds and the spices and other plants and fruits that come from there, um, which are to change cuisine in the 16th century and onwards, they also find... For example, from Newfoundland, we get large quantities of cod from fish coming from that part of the world. We see the ambition of people to eat what the elite want. Now, how do the elite distinguish themselves? Well, new tastes from new foods. Certainly, we see... Uh, an increasing trade in other foods, the growth of the sugar trade, for example. Uh, from the Near East, we find it grown, sugar is grown on the islands across the Mediterranean. Crete, for example, used to be known as Candia. Cand is the Arabic for sugar. Uh, we find sugar in the Balearics. We find it in southern Spain and then into the, um, the islands of the Atlantic. Citrus fruits are highly prized by the elite. Here you see an image of a citron, the precursor of the lemon. Um, these give a very bitter, sharp taste. They are very, very expensive and it is really only the elite that can consume them until quite well into the 15th century. We find that these change as well. Uh, we find them as sugared conserves uh, coming from the Mediterranean, not only for use as part of meals, but also as cosmetics. Oranges, again, come from the Mediterranean world. Again, they are bitter. Uh, we find Henry VIII, for example, has a juicer for oranges. It's not until we get Oranges coming from China that we get sweet oranges in the 16th century. So we've got these tastes, they are changing. The elite always want to be one step ahead. 
So people are trying to imitate the magnificence of the elite. There are few who can eat in the way that they do. They do, And indeed, there are few who should eat in this way, with the liberality and expense that it implies. But our elements are copied, and it drives further change. The increased amount of sugar, for example, uh, offers the opportunity for making fruit preserves. And we find these uh, late 15th century into the 16th century compots and things. So tastes are changing. Well, in conclusion, I would say that food is a microcosm of the medieval world. We have tiers of access to food. We have food that is socially desirable. Everybody wants things if they can afford them. Food is linked to morality. There is a very close connection to diet. It's also, I think, um, a performance, quite an exaggerated performance in terms of the service of food. And we see this, this copied. But it's also very clear that medieval people enjoyed food in both town, country and in elite household. There is very great pleasure in their consumption. And we can also see the extraordinary range of foodstuffs that they eat. Thank you. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think in a peasant diet, we might find that there is less variety. We've got a diet that is substantially based on cereals, and that's quite unlike our present diets. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. 
Um, so let's just do a few questions, shall we? Um, if you're okay with that, got five minutes. Left. Okay, so um, that, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for that. Um, always good to see Longthorpe Tower in any presentation, though you didn't uh, you didn't have take the opportunity having the uh, the Bonacon with the flaming rear end in the picture. Which no, is... no, I, I first encountered Longthorpe Tower when I was interested in the history of the senses, because there is a there is a. a a wall painting of the Wheel of the Senses there. So that's why I had to go and see it. But there were all these other paintings of the birds of the fens there. So very, very topical. Yeah, no, brilliant. Um, so I learned lots of things about colour, about sources, about the meal times, about preservation and things like that. I've got a few questions that, uh, that, that uh, leap out at me. Um, firstly, you talked quite a lot about spices and and spicy foods and, 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 and spices coming from the Orient a bit, particularly with the Crusades. Was there any sense that there were, were foods that were foreign that, you know, you frowned upon? You know, t- today we have, you know, or at least used to be in in, uh, in cuisine, maybe uh, a few decades ago, like foreign foods that people were, were, uh, turned their noses up a bit. Was, was there any sense of that in, uh, in medieval times? Different sense of it, if you like. Um, there are people, particularly looking at this from a moralistic point of view, who are concerned that cooks are changing nature and changing the nature of a substance, for example, by colouring it is um, not only deceitful, it's changing its its natural characteristics and that is a bad thing. So colour is, is really quite interesting because we think of it, you know, colour, it's red, but we don't think of that as telling us something about the nature of the food, the intrinsic quality of it. So if something is red, it means something beyond the colour, as it, as it were. And we can see there are texts that tell us about the ripening of food. So an apple will go from green to red as it absorbs heat. So it's telling us something what's about what's there. But if you then turn it into a different colour, um, that that's misleading us in, in, in many ways. Um, but equally, other people see it differently and they use these opportunities to create almost false foods, if you like. So during Lent, at times when meat can't be eaten, um, people make meatballs out of um, other constituents, as it were, other ingredients, and and colour them to look like meat. So you're almost pretending that, though you're 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 eating it. So the, there are various ways of of looking at this, but there is a there's certainly. Uh, a number of instances which link food to places by name, so Leech Lombard or you know, things from Gascony or indeed the Saracen things, but they tend they tend to be conveying a notion of the exotic and uh, they're not necessarily rejected for their foreignness, but they're rejected, I think, for their great expense and uh, inappropriateness, as it were, in natural terms. Okay. Uh, another one uh, about snacking. So snacking in in, uh, in in our modern eating habits is deemed to be our great downfall, the cause of obesity and things like that. W- did people snack at all in, in the Middle Ages? 
I'm sure they did, otherwise it wouldn't have been part of the sin of gluttony to eat at inappropriate times. So, yes, and uh, one of the big worries of the medieval great household was keeping control of food and where it might be eaten. So one of the reasons why you eat in hall is that you concentrate your expenditure and your effort on consumption at a particular time, a particular place where everybody can see it going on. You don't have it going on in chambers, in a, in a, you know, privately, because people could eat anything there, and some of the key message goes on. And I think just the the control that's there in terms of how food is issued is clearly clearly designed to stop um, this inappropriate consumption and keeping control of the grooms. I mean, if you've had teenage boys, you know how they will hoover anything. So keeping your food locked up and <laughs> is, is critical. Snacking will go on if there's a chance, yes. Um, one thing that, uh, that uh, it was very interesting, I thought, was uh, you talked about how um, uh, they used to eat uh, certain uh, birds like bitterns and things, which are now um, now extinct or in in very short supply. Um, and um, we we have this sense that in the in the Middle Ages, people were sort of better at resource management in some way, sort of more in tuned with nature and were sort of knew the, knew what they could eat and what they couldn't eat and and how to how to maintain stocks. But clearly, they didn't if they ate uh, certain animals to extinction. I think that the pressure of prestige, for example, um, induces people to go for these special foods. There are people who make their living by catching birds. So, for example, there is a funeral feast for Bishop Mitford of Salisbury in 1407. And they know that when they want particular types of birds, there is somebody down in Wimborne who they will go to for the, the herons or whoever it is, and these will be brought specially for the feast. I don't think they're thinking of it in this way at all. Um, not at that sort of sort of level. Um, I have not seen anything where anybody has said, there are no bitterns this year. And in fact, they try to farm them. Uh, they farm herons, for example, on the Bishop of Winchester's estate. So the reason for doing this is you will have these great birds available for the feast whenever they're wanted. So I guess they're trying to manage it in some ways, but they're managing it in terms of being able to deliver it. I don't think they've necessarily thought about the longer term resource implications. Okay, just a couple more quick ones. So you talked a bit about um, the importance of seafood, and particularly um, you mentioned eels at one point. Um, I was uh, I was reading the other day uh, a, a bit of work, a bit of research about eels and the importance of eels in the economy. Um, and it, it was um, it was Henry the First who famously um, was deceased from a, a surfeit of lampreys, wasn't it? Which is a, a sort of eel, I think. Um, so are eels uh, a sort of an overlooked bit of the uh, the medieval diet and economy? Well, there are interestingly two very different things here. There are enormous quantities of eels that can be caught, and we find large renders of them in Doomsday. We find, if you look at the lateral salter, there's a very nice eel trap there at a at a mill. Um, people in the countryside do uh, do catch them. I found. Uh, 
in another coroner's role from Lincolnshire from the 1360s, a reference to an Elgar, which is an eel spear. So people are out there catching these things, and they're really quite uh, quite important. They're quite common, and they are significant, I think, in, in diet. Lampreys, on the other hand, are really very special foods, and they're found... Um, in the River Severn in particular, and they are highly prized and they are caught and sent off to the king or or whoever. And um, we have records of some being sent to Marlborough Castle, I think in the, the 1220s, um, in barrels with padlocks on. Um, they're, they're, they're really high status foods. And Bishop Thomas Cantaloupe, who was Bishop of Hereford, died in 1282, was very partial to them, but he uh, had a he didn't really like the idea of sensory stimulation. So he used to tempt himself by having dishes of lampreys from the seven served to him as delicious as they might be, and he used to send them away. <laughs> completely sort of inverted sense of conspicuous consumption but uh temptation and resisting it <laughs> okay right one last question um so if uh, if you were lucky enough to be transported back to a medieval banquet what do you suppose would be the most surprising or distasteful elements to the food that you were served from our modern palate well, I think you would be struck by the sheer variety of things there. And there would be a lot of things that would be unfamiliar. Certainly, uh, the range of birds, uh, the range of fish is really quite uh, unusual. If you were in uh, an elite household, you would probably be struck by the absence or near absence of vegetables. Um I I think it's a completely different sort of taste it has almost no sweetness to it in the way that we have diets that are overloaded with sugar. You only need a spoonful of sugar in a, for a medieval man to know that the sugar's there. So it's it's very, very different, I think, uh, conceptually. I think as humans, we um, suffer from what's called the omnivore's dilemma, um, which means we could eat almost anything, but in practice we don't. We concentrate on a few things and we concentrate on things that are familiar to us or can be made familiar to us. This is the reason that lies behind, this is the thinking behind tomato ketchup, I think, and getting people to eat eat their their, their fish or whatever, whatever it is. Now, I think we'd be struck certainly by the by the variety at an elite level. And we might find some of that, particularly the exotics, quite unpalatable. I think in a peasant diet, we might find that there is less variety. We've got a diet that is substantially based on cereals, and that's quite unlike our present diets. Admittedly, we will have our our Weetabix or our toast or whatever, but it's it's nowhere near the same. We're not getting something like eighty percent of our calories from cereals, which they would have been. So it's it's a contrast. I think beyond that, it's personal taste. <laughs> 
I really do. And I think we can familiarise ourselves to almost anything. I mean, as an adolescent, your first taste of bitter beer is quite revolting, but you're then encouraged to eat it, to drink it by seeing what others do. And our tastes can be expanded as we're encouraged to emulate others. Brilliant. Uh, well, Chris, uh, Professor Chris Woolgar from uh, the University of Southampton, thank you so much for that virtual tour around medieval food and foodstuffs. That was uh, a fascinating journey. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, we will um, we will hopefully have a, another session uh, at the end of our Medieval Life and Death Day where we'll have you back for a, a couple more questions. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. That was Chris Woolgar talking about medieval food. If you'd like to watch this lecture, it's available at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. For more from this series, tune in next Saturday when Elmer Brenner will be discussing medieval medicine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 